Hello, Connecticut, and welcome to the Paid Leave Podcast. The title uh, basically says it all. I'm Nancy Barrow, and I will be delving into this new state program and how it can help you and your family. This podcast will give you information you should know about Connecticut Paid Leave and maybe just a little bit more. Connecticut Paid Leave brings peace of mind to your home, family, and workplace. Welcome to the Paid Leave Podcast. Eating disorders affect about 20 million women and 10 million men, and it's way more complicated than just wanting to get skinny. 50% of girls aged 6 to 12 are worried about getting fat. Just think about that. And every 52 seconds, someone dies from an eating disorder. Connecticut Paid Leave gives 12 weeks of income replacement when you need to take leave from your job to take care of your own serious health condition or that of a loved one as a caregiver. We also cover mental health treatments and addiction treatments if you are incapacitated and get continued treatment from a health care provider. We have three types of leave. There's the block leave where you take all 12 weeks at once if you need it, or intermittent leave so you can continue to work and maybe take time off for doctor's appointments or therapy. And there's reduced schedule leave where you can work maybe a half day and do half a day of treatment. Some people get confused with FMLA and Connecticut Paid Leave. FMLA will give you job protection when you're on leave, and Connecticut Paid Leave gives you the income replacement while out on leave. They are two separate programs. Here to talk about eating disorders is Rebecca Bardwell-Dueco, and she is the Assistant Vice President of Clinical Operations and Ambulatory Services at Walden Behavioral Care. She earned a master's degree in mental health counseling and is a certified eating disorder specialist who has worked with some state agencies like DEMAS and DOC. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Can you give a little background before we get started? Because you've been um, in the treatment portion of eating disorders pretty much your whole adult life. My senior year of college, I all my life, I always wanted to train marine animals. I might have a slight obsession with manatees. And so I did an internship my senior year, like any responsible senior uh, college year student would do, and quickly discovered that it was not what I had thought I was signing up for. So I had to break the news to my mother. And um, that semester, my senior year in college, I had taken an abnormal psych class and found that I actually wanted to go to class. Uh, Even though it was one of those larger lecture size classrooms, I was pretty excited. I don't think I missed one. I read the whole textbook before we were even halfway through the semester. And it was just something that really felt important to me and that I I felt really passionate about. Um, And so I quickly learned in order to to do anything with the field, you needed at least a master's degree. So I went right into grad school. And I do think it was fate or beshert or whatever word you want to use for it. And the woman that I was sitting next to in my first day of grad school, I said to her, you know, I should probably get a job in the field. I learned my lesson. I said, I should probably get a job in the field before I go through all this graduate school to make sure this is something that I really, you know, I'm sure that I, that I can see myself doing. And she was like, Oh, I work at the Renfrew center and uh, we're always needing psychiatric technicians and things like that. And I was in grad school in South Florida and the Renfrew center of coconut Creek is right down the road there. And I was immediately, immediately struck by how debilitating this illness was. I think that eating disorders get a lot of, um, 
are often glamorized hmm. and often seen, you know, I think when people ask me what I do and I say I work with people with eating disorders, I often hear things like, oh, I wish I had an eating disorder or, you know, can and and make comments like that. And it's hard to hear things like that. Or when people say like, oh, I'm I'm I definitely have this type of eating disorder because eating disorders are not glamorous. They are mm. not fun. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'll have an eating disorder today. They are debilitating, deadly illnesses. And as evidenced by my first day at the Renfrew Center, I was sitting there at the table eating and a girl, a, a teenager had a seizure at the table. Wow. And I was shocked because me, like most people at the time, without a lot of education about eating disorders, only thought about anorexia, right? When people think about eating disorders, they usually think about anorexia. When in reality, anorexia is actually the rarest occurring eating disorder, and people also think that anorexia has the most medical complications and the other eating disorders aren't dangerous. This young woman happened to have bulimia nervosa. And there she was at the table in her teens having a seizure because of the medical complications. And so, and I also realized at Renfrew just how little treatment there was available. Oftentimes after residential, these people had to just discharge back to their outpatient provider at home that had no idea how to treat eating disorders, that there weren't any specialists available. And so I was like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to be a part of making treatment more available, having more treatment options, educating people on eating disorders, helping to break the myth that they are just a phase or that they're an illness of choice or vanity because they could be they couldn't be farther from the truth. I've always felt passionate about female empowerment and women's empowerment. And um, so I think that was also something that spoke to me. The Renfrew Center of Florida is a female only or assigned female at birth now only treatment center. Mm. However, um, I want to be clear that eating disorders happen to all genders, all races, all ethnicities. It's just that, again, as I was speaking to before, there is a privilege in accessing care. And the research that was done a lot of the times is done in treatment centers. So you're only speaking to and learning from the people that are in treatment centers. But if the only people that have access to treatment centers are affluent Caucasian females, then that's how the illness gets. That's how that story gets told. But it's just because we're not talking to the right people. We're not doing a good enough job assessing for it. And we're not doing a good enough job making treatment accessible and affordable for everyone. Well, let's, let's sort of start at the beginning. So how do you explain an eating disorder? Because there's more than what I always knew. I always knew there was anorexia nervosa and bulimia. Like those are the two that I knew. But what is an eating disorder? That's such an important question. When people think of eating disorders, usually anorexia jumps right into mind. Mm -hmm. um, and I think because it's been the most visible um and it is something that people think they can see and notice in other people. And it's often glamorized. And then you're right. Second place usually goes to bulimia nervosa. But again, because of the stigma of binging and purging via self-induced vomiting or laxatives, there's more shame that comes with that illness. Whereas there seems to be, and there is shame for the person who has anorexia nervosa, but there is less shame publicly for people that have anorexia. There's almost a fascination with it versus, uh, um, you know, something that's more egodystonic or goes against your your own values, right? Right, so, because I think with bulimia, you're still eating, but you're just throwing it up, right? Like, so with, with anorexia, you're not. You, you're restrictive with what you won't eat. 
That's another thing that people don't realize is that there's actually two types of anorexia nervosa. So there is the anorexia nervosa, the restricting type, which you, like many, many, many others, think that that's as far as it goes. But there is actually also anorexia nervosa binge purge type. People with anorexia nervosa also, excuse me, also binge and purge. That was my freshman um, college roommate. She was anorexic and she had bulimia, you know, and I was like, this is just awful. And she left after the first semester, like she left school. I hope she left to get some treatment and some help. I hope so, too. Yeah. So it's it's extremely dangerous because, um, you know, restricting food obviously disrupts not only our psychological systems, but our medical reproductive um, endocrine systems. And then when you add in binging and purging, that disrupts your electrolytes as well. Mm. So bulimia nervosa is an extremely dangerous eating disorder, as is anorexia, as is binging disorder, as is atypical anorexia, as is ARFID. And I think the theme here is that all eating disorders are dangerous, not just anorexia. And, um, and again, yeah, anorexia nervosa has also a binge purge component to Mm. it. So people with anorexia nervosa do also binge purge. Uh, The only different, the difference is that somebody with the anorexia nervosa binge purge type, is it a significantly low weight where somebody with bulimia nervosa that binges and purges isn't necessarily at a low weight? It's fascinating. Uh, Do most eating disorders involve coexisting conditions like anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder or bipolar disease. Are there intersecting conditions? 100%. I would say it's rare to see somebody without an intersecting condition. Mm -hmm. So without a co-occurring disorder. When you think about eating disorders are similar to substance use disorders in that way, that they're maladaptive coping skills. They are coping skills. They're just maladapted. So oftentimes the depression comes first, the anxiety comes first, a trauma comes first, and the eating disorder is used to cope with symptoms of PTSD, depression, anxiety. Eating disorders can also lead to depression and anxiety because of malnutrition. When we aren't eating enough and when we aren't, or we are eating, or we're not eating in a balanced way, it's just it's not just about eating enough, but eating enough of everything that our body needs, then it affects our cognitions. It affects the way our neurotransmitters fire. It affects the, you know, levels of brain chemistry that we need to think clearly and properly experience a full range of emotions and eating disorders interfere with that. At Walden, how do you categorize when someone comes in and and what they need? Like with other diseases, there's stage one, two, three, and four, like cancer. Yeah. That's a really great question and so important. So at Walden, we have our admissions team. So somebody is worried that they might have an eating disorder or their spouse gives them an ultimatum or a friend expresses concern or they just are like, I can't live this way anymore. And they start doing a Google search, right? And they find Walden's number or another treatment center's number. At Walden, you call our phone number And our admissions team answers, and they set you up with an evaluation. And you meet with a a clinician that does a very um, thorough yet not hours long evaluation. Mm -hmm. And from that evaluation, basically, we look to 
assess the frequency of your eating disorder behaviors, the severity of your eating disorder behaviors, any current medical complications that you're experiencing, a history of medical complications that you may have experienced. We might ask you to send us some lab work. For adolescents, we often look at growth charts and we so that we can make a complete assessment of your psychosocial and medical functioning. And from there, we determine whether or not we feel you would need intensive outpatient, partial hospitalization, residential or inpatient treatment. Like I said, half of all girls between six and 12 worry about getting fat. How young do you treat people like? What's the youngest that you've treated and the oldest that you've treated? So we have a separate IOP program for um, for ARFID, for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. And we take kids as young as 10 mm-hmm. in that program. Um, we also have taken kids as young as 10 in our residential and inpatient units as well. And we go up to any age. We've had clients in their 70s and 80s that we work at all levels of care that we work to help treat their eating disorder. It seems like eating disorders are really secretive, like they like to hide what they aren't or are eating. Why is it? Is it a shame issue or is is this part of what the eating disorder does to people? Yeah, I would say both. I think that um, that both are true, that I think there is shame and stigma and there is very much a part of the eating disorder that folks feel how would I live without this illness that it becomes very much a part of their identity and giving it up feels so scary and so vulnerable um, that they are, you know, that they fear letting people in and letting them know what they're doing because then they'll have to do something about it. Mm -hmm. When you get people in, sometimes do you just say they need to be hospitalized? You know, they need to have, yeah. Yes. So, so, so if somebody came in and their electrolytes are imbalanced or their heart rate is low or they have severe orthostasis or uh, suicidal ideation, mm-hmm. there are high rates of suicide with people in eating disorders. About 26% of people with eating disorders die from suicide. Yeah. Cause I mean, if you're losing someone every 52 seconds, that's really daunting. Yes. Yeah. How do you help that? So I think Again, part of it is we have to, the person has to re-nourish themselves. Mm. So that's always the first step because it it's nearly impossible to tease out if this person's depression is organic or their anxiety is organic without refeeding them. Because when you are malnourished and that doesn't, again, that doesn't mean that you're not eating enough. Malnourished can mean lots of different things. It means you're not eating a balanced amount of all the things. Um so first we have to work on re-nourishing people and refeeding people. Mm. And even that can be dangerous because your body, our bodies are these amazing machines that are programmed to keep us alive no matter what. So the body will just work to find, you know, a new homeostasis. So we have to monitor people often daily when they are nourishing them, nourishing themselves in a better way to make sure that the body is slowly readjusting to that. And then we have to see, you know, okay, Um, and do an assessment of what medications might be helpful for this person's depression or anxiety. We also do treat PTSD Mm. co-occurring with the eating disorder. So at Walden, we use CPT, which is cognitive processing therapy to treat PTSD symptoms while people are 
having um, are in the process of being treated for their eating disorder, because it makes sense. Why would I feel safe enough to give up my eating disorder if I don't feel safe enough in this world? And why would I just give that up and be left with nothing? but feeling unsafe. Uh, I know everything is individualized because no two people are the same, but what is the average stay to treat an eating disorder at Walden? And do they gradually go back into less therapy, less time in therapy? The average length of stay at eating disorder treatment centers is a very different conversation than what would be the ideal length of stay. Yeah, right, right. Right? So because you remember we oftentimes want to keep people longer and feel they need more time, yet their insurance company is saying it's time to go. And insurance companies often make that decision based on weight alone Mm. and disregard the other contexts of things that are, that are happening um, and disregard the risk of relapse. And so then you see people stepping down too soon to the next level of care, then they have to just come right back, um, which actually probably cost more money in the long run, but for whatever reason, that's still, it's, it's hard to, um, to help insurers come around to that. And I, and I imagine that part of the reason for that is that because treatment is expensive, but, you know, I think it all depends on the severity of somebody's illness, how long they've had it. Right. So if I, and the severity, right. So even if I've only had my quote unquote only had my eating disorder for a year, if the severity is high and I've been using my behaviors multiple times a day, it's going to take me longer to break that cycle than somebody who has, who has been relying on their eating disorders in a, in a less severe way. Right. So ideally people would spend three to six months in treatment. Ideally. Does insurance always pay for that? No, I think at Walden, you know, we see our our length of stay from anywhere from 30 to 40 days in the higher levels of care. And that's often the most we can get out of insurance companies. Do some people have a lifelong treatment for their eating disorder or is that a misnomer? So I do think that um, eating disorders get a bad rap too, in terms of being like this terminal illness that once you have an eating disorder, you always have an eating disorder and you're never going to get well. People make a full and lasting recovery. I see people get well and all the way well and stay all the way well all the time. The difference for those people and the people that do struggle, and certainly you can struggle lifelong, is that the right help isn't available or they don't follow treatment recommendations, or they don't have access to all the levels of care, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you heard me just say that ideally people would stay for three to six months, but how many people can afford that? How many people can afford to take time off from work or to take time away from a family to to get the help that that they need? Which is why there are other levels of care available that have less restraints, but still it does, any treatment requires you taking the time to invest in that. How important do you think programs like Connecticut Paid Leave are in in the help of treatment and giving people time away from work to to focus on their health or their child's health? The Connecticut Paid Leave program is literally life-saving. We have people that would not be able to get treatment without it. They wouldn't be able to support themselves without it. They wouldn't be able to keep their insurance without it. They wouldn't be able to support their families or their children without it. 
we have lots of parents that use it um, in the way that you were describing that maybe they just take a half a day, right? They have to go into work late because they need to be home to have breakfast with their child to make sure that their child is following, you know, what their, what their renourishment requires. Uh, children and adolescents require supervision in order to ensure that they are meeting their, their needs. And that requires, families eating with them and supervising and often attending treatment with their child as well. There are family meals, family therapy that has to happen. I think that, you know, an antiquated way to treat children is to send them off to a residential treatment center Mm -hmm. and and the family has the expectation that all they need is to go to residential for 30 days and this treatment center is going to fix them and send them home and they're going to all live happily ever after. And it just doesn't work that way. Residential facilities are an important part of the treatment process to break the cycle. And yes, it may require going to another state, but it doesn't end there by any means that is that is the first stage in in a, a multi-staged treatment process that takes education of the parents to how does the parent know how to guide the child how to support the child parents need their own education understanding themselves the severity of the illness They need to know the DBT skills or the CBT skills that their child is learning so that they can suggest them to them in the moment when they see them struggling. They need to understand the illness so that they don't inadvertently make comments that are invalidating and that could potentially make the illness rear its ugly head. Yeah, the trigger points, right? How long do you follow people when they leave your treatment and are home? Do you check in occasionally or what's the policy? Yeah, so we typically like to do a a seven-day discharge follow-up just to make sure that they met the the expectations on their aftercare plan. So every client leaves with an aftercare plan, an outpatient appointment set up, or a re-engagement appointment set up with their outpatient therapist. We work really hard to have people start their outpatient therapy or resume their outpatient therapy while they're still in IOP and intensive outpatient treatment with us so that that transition is much more solid and smooth. And we want to increase the probability as much as we can that they will be successful in continuing therapy. You've mentioned this before, but I saw on your website that you say you welcome all genders and diagnoses. And what about the LGBTQ plus community and other marginalized communities? Is there something specific for them? Yeah. So it's it's definitely not all the same, especially for folks in the LGBTQ plus community. I think it's really important to remember that especially people that don't identify with the with what the gender they were assigned at birth, their body, quote unquote, dysmorphia is very different. They're not necessarily manipulating their food to change their body shape or size. They are working hard to feel like they are their gender reflects their gender identity, that their body reflects their gender identity. And so that is a much different experience than somebody who is having gender dysphoria related to their, I'm sorry, body dysmorphia related to their shape and size. And for that reason, we do have um, Rainbow Road, which is a virtual program that is PHP and IOP. And that is a program that is run 
by staff that also identifies LGBTQ plus for clients in the LGBTQ plus population. And again, it is super important that folks feel safe in an environment in order to heal and, and have groups and topics and feel safe to talk about things within a group where it feels safe to do so, especially because marginalized folks, not just LGBTQ plus, but, but, and LGBTQ plus have been traumatized, have been othered, uh, experience microaggressions regularly. And it's important that we provide a safe space for them to share those things with a group that feels safe to do so. So you're kind of famous. I just want to let you know that I watched the HBO documentary Thin and you were in that. Tell me about that experience because that was a powerful, powerful documentary. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, it was a really, you know, I do feel so fortunate that um, I was able to have an experience like that in my career, not, um, it's, it's a once in a lifetime, really. And my takeaway from that is, you know, certainly whenever you watch a documentary on an eating disorder or substance use disorders, there's always a little bit of that, um, of how it's portrayed and a little bit of mixed feelings at the time and still today what I appreciate is that it helped take some of the glamour out of these illnesses. And that really showed the pain that is associated with eating disorders. It showed that people die from these eating disorders. It portrayed family dynamics. Um, it portrayed some treatment center dynamics. It portrayed weight stigma and so many important topics. A lot of people say dieting is just a normal part of life, but it's not because it can get deadly like it did in Thin. Yeah, it, it's not really. You know, I think it's one of those myths that, you know, similar to every college student binge drinks <laughs> that like every everyone diets, you know, and I think that diet culture is very powerful and and it, it seeps into all of our brains through social media and through commercials and, you know, depicts people being happier because they're on a diet. Um, and I think that it's so important to I, I do want to also delineate that not everybody who goes on a diet is going to develop an eating disorder. But most people with eating disorders, a diet was the quote unquote gateway drug, mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah. To their eating disorder. What is your hope for this new year of 2024 when we're talking about eating disorders? Oh, that is such, I love that question. Um, my hope is that at the lowest levels, pediatricians, primary care physicians, parents, spouses, loved ones, we have to do a better job assessing for these illnesses. When you walk into your primary care physician's office, you fill out a survey about substance use, you fill out a survey about depression. Nobody is asking about eating disorders. Nobody is asking, I shouldn't say nobody. Rarely are you given a survey that asks about your relationship with food. And if any eating disorder is being assessed for, it's usually anorexia and it's usually just being asked, questions are just being asked in females that are exhibiting signs of anorexia. And we have to do a better job assessing for these illnesses, again, because of the shame and stigma involved, people aren't going to just come out to their doctor and say, I think I have an eating disorder, especially because most of the time, 
again, anorexia nervosa is the rarest occurring. So most of the people, when they do express a concern about their relationship with food, if they aren't underweight and significantly underweight, the doctor will say, but you don't look like you have an eating disorder. So what should people look for as a parent or a friend? Maybe telltale signs that someone has an eating disorder. Yeah. So, you know, I think I don't want to just talk about dieting because I think that that's obvious and that's talked about enough. Mm -hmm. But I think you can tell when somebody's relationship with food is changing if you're looking for it. And and I think that we have to be aware of it, too, and to not ignore things that we see. It might um, it might be wrappers in somebody's room. It might be food disappearing. It might be. Um, noticing that this person seems to be avoiding having meals with you or their friends, or all of a sudden when it's meal time, they're nowhere to be found. Somebody that used to really enjoy celebrating with food no longer wants to do that. Um, it might be a marked change in their mood, right? Irritability, uh, avoidance, isolation, um, I think a change in the type of clothes they wear. So um, you might see rituals around food or mealtime behaviors, comments about their own body, comments about other people's bodies. Interesting stuff. And I just want to thank you and everybody at Walden for utilizing Connecticut Paid Leave and letting caregivers and patients know about it. I really think that's wonderful that you're doing that. Definitely. We are so grateful for it. It's saved countless families. And there, and it, and you're right, though. There are some people that it doesn't occur to them. And we have to be like, hey, we'll write you a letter. You can take leave. Like, that's what it's for. And people are like, oh, yeah. Rebecca bardwell Dueco, Assistant Vice President of Clinical Operations and Ambulatory Services for Walden Behavioral Care. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. It was really, really important for us to talk about this. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for being willing to talk about this topic. And for more information or to apply for benefits, you can go to ctpaidleave.org. This has been another edition of the Paid Leave Podcast. Please like and subscribe so you'll be notified about new podcasts that become available. Connecticut Paid Leave is a public act with a personal purpose. I'm Nancy Barrow, and thanks for listening.